What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hi everyone, Connor here. If you don't know already, we have launched Intelligence Squared Premium. For bonus content, early access listens and exclusive extras, just head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the episode description. And if you're an Apple Podcast person, hit subscribe for the bonus extras from your podcasts app too. Thanks again for all your support. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. To some in Britain, the 90s were an unrivaled time, and for New York Times best-selling author Dylan Jones, this can be encapsulated in one year in particular, 1995, the year of Oasis, Danny Boyle's train spotting, pubs finally opening on a Sunday, and new labour. Dylan Jones spoke to the key players of this era to understand the vast cultural shifts that Britain went through as a nation from art to politics and why we continue to nostalgically view this decade. Our host for the episode is the writer and curator Echo Eshon. Here's Echo with more. Dylan Jones in the 1990s is one of the first editors of ID Magazine before becoming a contributing editor of The Face and the editor of Arena Magazine. He spent the 1990s working in newspapers, principally The Observer and The Sunday Times, before becoming editor of GQ Magazine from 1999 to 2021. He's a best-selling author and has written and edited over 20 books. His latest book is Faster Than a Cannonball, 1995 and all that, and it's my great pleasure to be in conversation with Dylan. Look, it's a great book. It's a great choral symphony of a book. It's got how many different voices in there? It's got over 100, 160 or so through the book, all of whom are players and actors and key figures uh, in the 1990s, in the culture and society of the 1990s. Why an oral history of the 1990s? The motivation for the book I suppose it's twofold, really. I did a book on David Bowie, which was an oral biography, and I enjoyed the form of that. I enjoyed the way that it was, to use your word, there was a sort of chorus of voices, and it allowed me to um, explore his narrative in ways, in different ways that weren't traditionally done. And I did a book on the New Romantic period uh, a couple of years later using the same format, and I, and I enjoyed it because it was a way for me to write about a period, but also to include those voices that often don't get heard. Because I think that um, when, you're, when you're doing any book like this, whether, whether it's a particular person or whether it's a period, there tend to be a kind of number of people that you have to include. There are the notable people, the people who are very closely associated with an era. Um, that, that you have to include in in some way, whether through direct interviews or um, archive material. Then there's a second group of people who tend to get ignored, whose voices uh, deserve to be heard, who aren't always heard. Um, and then there are the third group of people when you're talking to someone, when you're interviewing someone, uh, and they say, you must talk to Kevin. And you go, well, who the hell's Kevin? And you endeavor to find and interview Kevin. And so there are sort of a third of any, any of these books, there's a lot of Kevins. And when I decided to do the book about the 90s, I very much wanted to do that format because it's a format that I'm very comfortable with. 
I've had a bit of success with, and it seems to work with the way that I write. And secondly, I wanted to do the book because while there are a lot of very bad television programs about the 90s, there are very, very few good books. And I think you can look at most periods of um, in the narrative arc of post-war pop culture and there will be at least half a dozen very good books about any particular period or any particular artist. And the 90s, I thought, was crying out for another voice. If the 90s is crying out for a voice, if the 90s in a way is underheard, what did you feel you wanted to say or bring to view about the period? I think that if you take two of the strongest sort of cultural themes of the 90s, which is Britpop and the YBAs, I think they've been documented so, so many times and so often now that, they, um, that the very idea of both of them has, come, has become quite reductive. And I wanted to, to, to try and tell the story of the YBAs uh, through a different lens. If you read Tracy's interviews, uh, and I interviewed Tracy a lot for the book, if, if you read her testimony, it's a lot less celebratory than I has been understood. I think that, you know, she calls out a lot of the sexism and a lot of the media attacks. Also, I wanted to speak to Doris Saatchi, who is someone who is never spoken to and has almost been written out of history. And she, along with her husband, Charles, at the time, were responsible for the first Saatchi collection up in St. John's Wood. And even though she will, she sort of denies it officially, her taste and his wherewithal, which created that extraordinary collection. So I, I spent a lot of time uh, tracking her down, and I'm very grateful for her talking to me. Yeah, so, I, I, so from that respect, I wanted to look at that through a different lens, strong female lens. And... I didn't want to deny the whole aspect of um, Britpop at all, but I wanted to try and make it less hysterical. And I think a lot of the commentary about Britpop has become very hysterical, as has the commentary about Cool Britannia in, in general. And I think that Cool Britannia uh, has become, uh, it's become kind of synonymous with New Labour, which is kind of crazy because it, all, it, cause it happened in opposition to a Tory government before the Labour government got into power. Um, and plus, I think it has a very long tail. I, I think that I genuinely think that the 90s were, were an extraordinary, extraordinarily creative period, which, as I say, has been demonized because people think of the 90s as the terrible third Oasis album, the much fourth series of The Far Show, the death of Diana leading into the Iraq war. So everything gets condensed and is reduced to sound bites. So I wanted to try and, um, I suppose, uh, redeem it in some respects. I mean, I think, I think you do that extraordinarily well in terms of bringing to light the dynamism and creativity and the sense of a culture in play and all these figures in connection with each other in a number of different ways. I mean, look, it's an extraordinary cast list that you bring together. Liam, Noel, Tracy, Tony Blair, Kate Moss, Damien Hurst, David Beckham, Brett, Anderson, Rankin. You know... You. I, I'm going to say... Yeah, okay, yeah, I, I'm in there. I'm a small player in there. But you've brought in... You know, you've brought in pretty much most of the people who in terms that we that we can easily conceive made that decade can you just talk about can you talk about the experience of of working on the book the experience of talking from person to person as you did what is this like then working through this book in this way having these conversations doing these interviews one of the joys of doing an oral biography and as this is now the um the third one this I've is the done. third. I've just finished a fourth one, but this is this is the third one I've published, is listening to people's recollections because it wasn't so long ago. I mean it's you know thirty years ago, but not not so long ago. Um but people's people's a people's on a in a macro micro way, people's recollections are very different. I you can interview six six different people who are in one room and all their recollections will be different. But not only, not only are their recollections different, but the way in which they remember those situations, they all have completely different context. 
And I think that a lot of people have distanced themselves from the 90s because of the way that the decade has been played out. Um, and you can speak to some of the protagonists, and as soon as you mention Britpop or Cool Britannia, they just envisage a kind of Union Jack and they run screaming for the hills because they, they think that in some respects it's a precursor to Brexit, um, that it was very nationalistic, etc., etc. I don't think either of those things are true, but they are um, they have become sort of top notes, if you like. So, um, but to answer your question, uh, I find it fascinating from a personal and professional point of view, which kind of is the same thing, I think, in the end. It's because of people's recollections, because some, sometimes you are asking someone a question in the hope that they're going to give you the answer you want. And other times it's completely the opposite. I mean, sometimes, for instance, when I was interviewing Noel, I wanted Noel Gallagher to tell me the war stories. So it's the sort of it's the tent pegs of, of mm -hmm. the decade. So with Noel, you're, you know, you're also going to get a lot of other stuff too, because he's going to contradict himself. He's going to contradict other people. He's going to contradict me, and he's going to have his very own specific views. So, um, yeah, yeah. So I suppose what I was what I was searching for is twofold. It's people to tell the sort of the tent peg stories and also to, to embellish those stories with things that I simply didn't know. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's interesting. You get people to talk in very candid and very open ways. Noel is one of those Tracy. I mean, as you say, is another, they, I mean, who were the, I guess, who were the people who surprised you? Who were the people who shone brightest in terms of this conversation, these this whole set of conversations? A whole bunch of people, actually. Um, Courtney Love was fascinating. Courtney, I think, opened up because she knew I was coming from... I think, I think the important thing is people understanding that you're coming from a good place. I mean, people don't want to talk to you. They don't want to talk to you. They don't like what you yeah. do. They don't like what you stand for. They don't want to talk about the period. That's fine. You can't take that personally. And I found this out when I was doing the Bowie book. A lot of my, because it was a it, it was a posthumous book. It was a book that was done after he died. A lot of the people I wanted to interview, I didn't know. I mean, a lot of the people I did know, which was fine, and most of them said yes. But a lot of the people I needed to be in a book, I didn't know. So that first communication is really important. That first communication where someone they don't know is contacting them to talk about a friend and and sort of icon, professional colleague, etc., etc., etc. I very quickly and and sincerely have to convince them that I'm not an ambulance chaser, um, and you can't. I can't be conceited enough to think, well, they're going to know who I am, so it's all going to be fine. You think exactly the opposite. So I think when you're interviewing people, I think the other important thing is you, you ask you ask open-ended questions. Unless you you need it, like sometimes I would say, well, just tell me about X because I wanted that person to tell me about X, and that was the only person who could tell me about X. But other times you just say why or how was it for you, or you try and let people talk. Um, because the other thing is, I think that all of these people have very particular experiences, and you can't be conceited enough to think that they have had the opportunity to recount those experiences in the way that they might for your for your book or you i suppose you 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 hope so but tony blair was really interesting i did a lot of these interviews during lockdown and so people were in a perhaps they had more time but maybe some people are feeling more vulnerable than they normally would have done blair was fascinating and very forthcoming and quite funny uh, and i felt that he was very open alistair campbell was interesting but alistair's always interesting he he tends as, as you know he's he's um he's like a machine gun it all comes out and it's uh, I mean, very no, opinionated the, the fascinating thing for me is you were there for so much of this you know there there are whole chapters basically set in the groucho or you know set in the front row uh, fashion week you are in all of these places and i think one of the things i really like is that as well as this panoply of voices there's you as well there's you offering commentary on the times and on the texture 
of those times. So there's you as observer, but also you as participant. And I guess I'm interested, I mean, did you feel in writing this book, you know, how did you feel, where were you situating yourself? As in, did you come into this thinking about, well, okay, I'm going to write essentially with this set of characters about my sense of this period of time? Is this a journey of discovery for you? Is this a journey of observation for you? Where are you? I think it's very much a, a work of journalism. I've written a lot about the 80s. I seem to be in the business of trying to redeem decades, and I've done 70s, 80s, and 90s. With with the 80s, um, I think it was written more from a personal perspective because I felt very much embedded in it. Um, In the 90s, even though I touched lots of these worlds, I wouldn't claim to be a protagonist at all. Uh, And in some respects, I was a voyeur because I was a a professional journalist, and I knew lots of those people, but I certainly didn't know all of them. But I like the way that I can sort of dance and have one foot in and one foot out. But there were lots of, you know, there are lots of people in here I hadn't met before, or lots of people I knew sort of um, lightly or fleetingly, and other people I I knew very well. But I like that mix. I mean, let's 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 go back through it. So one of the things I think structurally you've done an interesting thing where you take. A month and give it a theme almost. So March, it's new labour. August is Oasis for you, Blur. Is that is that a structure you came to, or did this fall naturally out of just what seems to be this incredible year in terms of nineteen ninety five? You know, we have all sorts of things: Oasis for you, Blur, Tracy's Tent, Loaded being launched, uh, Train Spotting being filmed. All of these things. So you take this year, 95, you break it down month by month. Yeah, is this a sort of naturally occurring structure or did it strike you at some point that a number of things are happening within this period of time? I think it's all of those things. Um, I could have taken, I could have done the decade chronologically uh, rather than thematically. I could organize it in various different ways, but I tried to tell it in a, in, an, in a journalistic way that had some momentum, that also had some veracity. Um, and the book's got a long tail. I mean, there's quite a large chunk of the book, which is about the legacy and um, where that whole period took us culturally and politically, mainly culturally. It was an organizational journalistic conceit in order to make the book as... Uh, readable as possible because when you're trying to squeeze an entire decade into a book I didn't want it to be facile I needed it to have a a strong narrative and doing it thematically like that I hope works there's a great tension in there as well that that you've already hinted at between I suppose people who you know look back with fondness or intimacy or connection to that period and then people who are anxious about being connected with certain parts so jarvis talks about how he didn't like Britpop. he thought it's nationalistic and flag waving or john savage talks about how he doesn't like load lad culture yeah you get these tensions basically between i suppose different ideas of what was going on and what those movements represent so there's no there's single narrative in play there's a number of things happening at the same time yeah, and and that clash of, of opinion uh, and the intermingling of narratives is vital. And it's interesting, some people were far more circumspect than I expected them to be. Um, Ooh, and, other, and, and others were, 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 were far more passionate. And talking to someone like Miranda, um, Miranda Sawyer. This is Miranda Sawyer, the observer yeah. journalist. Um, who I first met in the 90s, kind of fascinating because her take on it was she had a brilliant ability to be macro and micro at the same time, especially talking about um, your colleague Gavin Hills, who, who I know that you knew very well. But one thing that became very pertinent as the book grew, and I interviewed over 100 people for the book, is that this was the last analog decade. This is the last decade before every time you did something, you'd have a smartphone shoved in your face or else you were shoving it in your own face for the purposes of 
publicity. And that's something that had occurred to me when I started, but it became such a dominant part of the book because everyone talked about it. Because I think in connection with that, you also had a sense that we were kind of rushing towards the end, not just the end of the decade, but the end of the century. And there was almost like an unwritten kind of feeling. It's like, we've got to have as much fun as we can before it all ends. <laughs> it, sounds, it, sounds, it sounds crazy, but that, that, that was very much something that came out because it was a very, very, very hedonistic time. And those things happen for a reason. One quick thing, because we've been bandying around some terms. So we talked about YBA is just for the avoidance of doubt. YBA stood for young British artists who were the movement of artists, including Tracy Emin, Damien Hurst, and so on, Jake and Dinos, who were really at the forefront of contemporary British art at that period of time. Um, Yeah, okay, wildly hedonistic period. And you, you give over, you know, a fair amount of space to considering just that just kind of propulsive rush of that period, the drugs, but also the, you know, exuberance and the ambition of the music and of the art making and so on. Just standing back from it journalistically, yeah, how do you sum up this period? What was behind the just kind of crazy energy of that time? Cheap cocaine. <laughs> I mean... In the, in the same way that, that pop culture is driven by drugs. You look at the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, they all have their own drugs. And cheap cocaine and cheap travel certainly contributed to the way that culture developed in the 90s. The whole um, Steve McQueen was brilliant talking about cheap travel, actually. Again, that was mm-hmm. something that hadn't occurred to me quite as quite so much until Steve started talking about it. And it's true there was a, a, not only a, a sense of um, sort of a cultural and uh, liberation, uh, narcotic liber- liberation, but literally you were able to to go to Paris or Prague or wherever for in in a way that you, you that you didn't ten or fifteen years earlier. However, I think that. Um, to, to return to something that we, we touched upon earlier, a lot of what happened culturally in the UK in the early 90s was as a response to Thatcherism. Well, yeah, so this is, this is the major period, in a way, almost the most slept upon sort of political period that we might go back to. What's the tension in play here between politics, art, music, pop culture in general, how would you describe how these forces are playing against each other? The early 90s period, in some respects, mirrors the early 80s, because as Damien Hirst talks um, very eloquently about this in the book, it was echoing or the whole Norman Tebbit idea of you get on your bike and do it yourself. There was a sense that the safety net had disappeared, that any kind of um, social help the sort of architecture of, of helping people who didn't have money, who were young, who were on the sort of bottom echelons of society, weren't going to get any help from the government, so they were going to do it themselves. And and I think it was Miranda who talked. It was Miranda or Tracy. I can't remember who. There was a, a few people who talk about this very particular thing. And obviously the protagonist would hate to be called Thatcherite. And their whole thing the antagonism was based around the fact that, well, we're young, we're motivated, we're, we're connected, we, we can make things happen. But there are a lot of people, a lot of people from the places we come from, the class that we come from, that can't do that, that don't have any kind of safety net. And that's what they were angry about. Um, but it was very much in opposition to a stagnant Tory government. I mean, very sweetly, I did interview John Major and he very very sweetly tried to take ownership of um of Cold Britannia which (laughs) (laughs) good luck to you John just a reminder you can support Intelligence Squared and get even closer to the world's most brilliant minds by signing up for Intelligence Squared Premium head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description to get started and Apple folks we've got you covered too hit subscribe for some bonus extras on your podcast app thanks for all your support 
so look, so I mean, I think it's Alan McGee who actually pointed out something that the, the, Alan McGee, who is the, the the boss of Creation Records, home to Oasis and amongst yeah. others. Alan McGee pointed out, I think, later on in the book that the whole period, uh, he said it was the last time the country was thriving, which is, which is, uh, I think, uh, an interesting point. It comes back to your point about cheap travel, about a number of things that we're all taking cheap cocaine, um, but also, yeah, kind of economic optimism, which is far different, say, from where we are right now. I wouldn't say it was the la- the very last period where where the country thrived, but certainly there were there were there were periods during the nineties that did feel very very optimistic, which is one of the reasons why it was so culturally important. But what is certainly true, and Alan mentioned this, and also Noel mentioned it, it, it was one of the last times where there was a genuine uh, wellspring of working class talent, uh, and that certainly changed. I think that yeah. Um, the inequities of society have become uh, very black and white. I think that um, uh, that a lot of those people perhaps wouldn't have had the same kind of channels available to them now or 10 years ago. I think the huge exodus of um, young artists from London, say, in the last five or six years, to uh, principally the South Coast, people just can't afford to live here anymore. Uh, and those pockets of creativity, those little sort of um, villages and ghettos and communities, they're not as powerful, I don't think, as perhaps they used to be. When we were all in lockdown, I think one of my, one of my sort of, uh, one of the vain hopes that we were talking about is that what London needs in particular is for lots of young people to come back to London and start breaking things. That's where culture comes from. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, I mean, here's, I mean, here's the thing. I mean, you're in a, you're almost a unique place in terms of having thought hard and written about these successive decades, the 1970s, the 1980s, and now the 1990s. Did your view of the 90s, did it change as a consequence of the conversations involved in creating this book? Yes, it did, because... And this doesn't always happen. I suppose part of the reason of doing the book is is to redeem it. Not redeem it in a grand way. That sounds very pompous. But I wanted to get the recollections and the testimonies of lots of people who were there who I felt had been um, done a disservice by, like I say, a lot of very puerile mm. television programs. And also, I learned a lot. You know, if you interview 100 people about a, a finite period, you do tend to learn a lot. And journalistically, that was invaluable. I tell you, it's one of the weird things about pop culture, isn't it? It's there, but we also tend to think of it as slightly disposable or slightly ephemeral. So actually, the task of capturing those voices, of saying, look, I'm going to cast a wide net and I'm going to actively listen. In fact, historically, it's a really important task. Well, I hope so. I think there were some people, you talk about the way that John Savage and Jarvis were kind of circumspect about what they felt was a certain kind of nationalistic vibe to what was happening. I mean, they thought that at the time. That's not, that's not hindsight. And actually, Nick Hornby was, was fascinating talking about the way that sport developed in the 90s. But then he was partially responsible for it. I think it's a combination of, of Rupert Murdoch and, and Nick Hornby in two very different ways who are responsible for the way that, that the appreciation of football changed in this country, um, not least by becoming more middle class. But I think, uh, particularly in Nick's case, that a lot of his ideas were formed at the time because he created Fever Pitch, and that was one of the most important literary events of the decade and remains so. So, one of the questions you raise towards the end of the book, and or it's raised by some of the uh, contributors, is trying to come to an assessment of some of these movements like Britpop. There's an argument floated, I mean, you've gestured to it already, but there's an argument floated that did Britpop, the nostalgic nature of this uh, and other aspects of the culture at that time, did this lead to Brexit? Did it lead to, from a marginal position of flying the flag, et cetera, to a kind of an overwhelming mainstream 
retreat from the modern? Uh, short answer is no. I think that you can look at that this period quite quickly uh, as, as, as a snapshot and think that a lot of the iconography is about the celebration of our island. And I don't think that's true because a lot of that is it's a celebration of an echo, which is an echo of the 60s, where the Union Jack was an echo of the Second World War. And so I don't think those things are true. I think that I think Brexit is a far more complex issue driven by issues of economics and immigration and 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 hardline politics, not least right wing hardline politics. So I think culturally that's that's not the right assessment. Although that's certainly an important thing to discuss and it's an important thing to ask. And as you say, it does get discussed in the book, but I think it gets kicked into touch quite quickly. The fascinating thing you do towards the end of the book, which is where you also consider Cool Britannia, you kind of measure this up against the swinging 60s and you have some voices that come into play from previous interviews and so on. You've had Michael Caine, David Bailey. Uh, how, do, how do these eras stack up? Because 60s is probably, you know, in popular terms is the closest analogue we have to, to, to the 90s in terms of Cool Britannia swinging 60s. How do those match up for you? Again, I think often the, the, the comparisons and the echoes that the 90s made or have made on on behalf of the 90s towards the 60s, again, are quite reductive. And I think that a lot of the echoes of culture in the 90s regarding the 60s were very knowing. You know, people didn't do this in a vacuum. And people's veneration of people like Paul McCartney or Ray Davis was... was, um, was not something that happened by accident. And an understanding of cultural movement, particularly from one class to another, was something that was acknowledged. And there were lots of funny tropes as well. But it's only when you get to things like the Spice Girls and Austin Powers where it becomes so ridiculous and so reductive <laughs> that it, it, it kind of destroys the, uh, the original kind of concept. And, Anyway, but it was again. It was important to look at the phenomenal success of the Spice Girls and Robbie Williams and Tony Blair in in his own way. I remember Alistair Campbell's famous quote that when he was asked what what was New Labour's greatest achievement, saying getting into power. And actually, David Cameron said something very similar. He said, "You know, what was your greatest achievement?" And it was forming the coalition in order to form a government. So, mm-hmm. um, I think those things are really interesting. I think that I think the dynamic between not the the dynamic between, but the attitudes towards Alastair Campbell and uh, Tony Blair, I, I try to address in the book as well, because I think that if um, if Blair has an Achilles heel, it's his inability to understand why people have a lot of animosity towards him. And I actually think it's quite simple. Because if you want to have a pop at Alistair, if you want to have a pop at Alistair Campbell, he's on local radio. He's doing a fun run. He's in Waitrose. He's in North London. He's on LBC right now. He's probably he's, he's in, he'll be in the street somewhere. You can go up to him, tap him on the shoulder, and you can say, the Iraq war, discuss. And he'll, he'll, he'll talk it out with you. But Tony Blair has become a kind of, he's so aloof and he's become a kind of Oz character. And actually, I think that when when Tony Blair puts his head above the parapet and says something about um, a particular topic, whether it's the economy or the Ukraine war, I, from a from a personal and professional point of view, usually think things that he says an awful lot of sense, but people don't care. People don't care because yeah, they well, haven't I mean, got that relation. With that, that relationship. I mean, he comes out, you, you know, it feels like you've got quite an affectionate take on him in the book. He almost has the last word in the book, I think. Is, am I right there? He's complaining about getting a haircut or something towards the end. Maybe he's. <laughs> too- That's in the acknowledgement, okay? <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Okay. I'm just, I'm still going. Well, the acknowledgements are good because. Again, it's like, you know, look, the, the thing is so full of life. As a book, well, well, that every that thing, page you have this. No, Karen. No, well, it, it's it, it's very nice and flattering to hear you say that because I think that these pages have to sing. If you're writing about, if you're if if someone's invested twenty odd quid in a book uh, about a particular thing, 
they want to be rewarded. Uh, and I'm not gilding the lily, but you want to be, you want to evoke those periods. You want to make people feel like, yes, they are at the Atlantic or they are in number 10, or they are in the Groucho Club, or they are in um, Ali Pali watching, watching Blur. Because um, it's not an a- academic test. Yes, it's a, it's a piece of history, um, but it's not an a- academic test, and it's got to sing. I got very cross the other day. I was in Waterstones uh, in Piccadilly mm-hmm. just before a meeting, uh, and I went in, and I looked at all the new books in the entertainment section, I couldn't see it. I looked again and I looked up and down and around and I thought, right, I'm going to have to talk to someone here. And I walked past the history section and there was a whole bank of them. And I thought, that's okay. I don't mind being in <laughs> Well, that's the thing. History doesn't mean the past. History is actually about relevance to the present. Do you Correct. know? It's a conversation we well have. Put. Yeah. Yeah. So look, going to go to some questions. We've got some questions from uh, from people watching and listening. Uh, one question from Stella, which actually is a question for both of us, but I'm going to ask it to you. What do you miss most about the 1990s? I think what I'm what, what I miss about the 1990s is what I miss about anything. It's um, I was talking about someone about this with someone just this afternoon. Because things happen, it's like. They seem so inconsequential at the time. It's crazy. I, I, we, you, you and I obviously used to work together many, many years ago mm. in the 90s. And I remember being in, in rooms and we'd be discussing things. And, you know, famous people would walk in or you'd see a picture of someone. And at the time, it's all seemed perfectly natural. But you look back now and go, wow, that's kind of important. And I'm not saying we were important for being there, but the fact that all that stuff happened, it's, I suppose you want kind of recall. You think, God, I wonder what that was like. I wonder what we did actually say, you know. Do you know what? It brought a lot back for me because I remember most of these places. Right, you know, yeah. From the Gracho to the Atlantic to the Saatchi yeah. Gallery, the first Saatchi Gallery, all of these places, these people. And the biggest thing, and I think one of the things you capture so well, is these the crossovers, really, between yeah. our and music and fashion and the ways you could go to one event and see people from these different parts of the world or parts of British society all in the same room together. And what comes out of that, I think, it's not just that you know, we can do all these names, YBAs and Britpop and so on. Actually, they were part of a similar world, of a shared world. And that was a kind of extraordinary thing. I'm not sure if that's happened since i don't think it does and i think um i'm not sure whether we need to worry so much about that i think we just have to accept it i think the media has changed so much that it's impossible for those little communities like we were discussing earlier the little the little villages the little communities the ghettos um for people to get together and create in in the same way that they used to because of social media and that 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 might sound like a cliche, but it's true. I, I I'm not one of these people who go, "Well, my pop music's better than your pop music." I mean, I would imagine that if you're between the ages of 15 and 24 now, you're having a better time, maybe a much better time than we had when we were young. <laughs> that's another book and that's another story. But I think that the um, I think me, media is different, so consequently, culture is different. Okay, look, I want to I want to get through some questions, and again, remember you can keep asking questions um, uh, from the uh, by clicking on the ask a question uh, box. You can tweet using the hashtag IQ two. But one other question, and we've got a few, so let's try and get through them. Quick round, Dylan. Quick question from Janelle: Which band do you think was more influential, Oasis or the Spice Girls? Oh, come on, <laughs> Oasis. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, to elaborate, or no. is that just so, 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 okay, good, good. That is, um, a, that, is a, that is a professional and personal uh, <laughs> opinion. Is there a single person who most encapsulates the 90s for you in their work and personality? Um, that is a really good question. In music, I think that you can look at a lot of the work that uh, the Blur did and... I think it's so particular to that period. I think that, um, and a lot of it has become so synonymous with the period. So I would say, but then on, you know, you you can look at the YBAs and think that Damien 
is probably more pertinent to the decade. But then you look at someone like Tracy, who has very much deliberately sort of outgrown the decade. So mm. everyone has their own context. I think it's a, I think it's an almost impossible question to answer. So I won't. <laughs> <laughs> um, how do the nineties rate in terms of race and gender? Uh, was much progress made on these fronts? The questioner notes that Naomi Campbell never made as much money as the other supermodels. What do you think? I mean, that's a that's a uh, a question that deserves more than one answer. I think that the I think that in the pockets of culture, in particularly in London, I think that there were lots of musical themes and lots of musical strains, many of which I didn't have the time to address in the book, which became very dominant through the 90s, became very important. Um, I think it's quite difficult to analyse that in a kind of um, um, macro way because from being there at the time, I think that both of those issues were... I think if if you're in London, in those kind of worlds, then those topics tend not to be addressed because you don't feel like you're like you're you're being isolated in a way. Because if you come through art school, um, or you live in particular parts of London, I think that the the gender split and and the race split are probably less particular than they are in other parts of the country i don't know i mean i mean it, it, it's, some, it's something well it's something steve mcqueen talks about in the book doesn't he steve mcqueen yeah. talks about you know uh people of color being marginalized somewhat within the yba movement and so on was that i mean steve was talking about that was was that an observation that, that came up more than once i mean also interesting you actually raise uh, you know you raise a question i'm not sure you raise a question, uh, you ask towards the end of the book also, was Britpop racist? I mean, this is in quote marks, this is something you're using to kind of echo a larger point, but I'm just interested, these are issues that are within there, and as a yeah. writer, what would, what's, what, you know, what are your thoughts? Uh, I think that, to, to, to echo what I said before, I think that the, I think there are cultural top notes which are unavoidable, um, but I don't think they were attritional in that way. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that those tropes were misinterpreted by people. But yeah, it, it was very important to talk to Steve and to get his take on that, and he wasn't prompted in, the, in those ways. I still think that music was quite siloed in the 90s. I think that I think you can certainly look at music now and probably in terms of both of those things i think gender and race i would say that music's probably in a healthier place now than it's ever mm. been before and i think a lot of that is to do with because we are now living in a world that is um dominated by edm uh, and has been for quite some time and i think the culture's shifted culture's changed culture's become more mass I think that you can look at the pockets that we that I address in the book, and they're, and they're quite small pockets of people. And culture's totally different now, as is echoed by social media, because it's a, mm -hmm. we live in a very, very different world, and possibly much better. Uh, it's a question from Jody. Some people have called the 90s a holiday from history. Do you agree, Dylan? <laughs> a I don't think anywhere should be a holiday from history. And even if it was a holiday for history, I think it makes it even more imperative to dig under the carpet. Mm. Um, uh, uh, there's another question. Uh, how did you get access to all the brilliant and famous people uh, you cite in the book? I mean... Um, well, I guess, okay, uh, I guess another way to put that, another way to put that is... I think it takes a you know it takes a singular talent takes an ability to be able to navigate all of these different worlds enough to know who to talk to how to talk to them how to connect them I mean obviously you have a history that goes back decades in terms of being involved in these conversations so it doesn't come out of nowhere but it's still at the same time it's still no small feat to assemble all these voices in one book 
Well, it's a it's an oral biography, and it's important to, to talk to those people. But as I say, to reiterate, one of the things I've always found, and you know, having done this four times now, it's important to talk to those people whose voices don't always get heard. And I always I also find it very important to talk to cultural commentators like yourself and journalists, and to talk to people who. It was very important for me to talk to people like you and Miranda um, mm-hmm. and Mark Ellen and Andrew Harrison and lots of people who were involved and actually in many respects were far more immersed in the scene than I was. And you, you talk to, to, to someone like um, Stuart McConey or indeed yourself or, um, uh, or Andrew Harrison, you know, they were actually fully operational at the time and uh, involved in a world where often I was sort of one step removed from and i and i and i enjoy that and those people tend to have very strong opinions and that and again that's very important and even and even better if they disagree with each other which often they do <laughs> who, who, um, who, who first came up with the word Britpop? i mean there's three people in the book who claim they did but <laughs> oh that's good but also i mean interestingly I think there, I I love this. There's a there's a there's a small passage where you're talking about being at Arena and the contributors who'd come in to Arena, Nick Cohn or you know whoever else, and you talk about how Sean O'Hagan, the um, journalist, comes in, never takes his overcoat off despite the heat, but Sean coins the phrase "new lad," and at yeah. the time you don't you you you're skeptical about this as a, as an idea even. I was very skeptical, and I and I said, I don't believe you. Go away and write it. And he came back, and it was a very plausible argument. So we published it, and look what happened. <laughs> you know, he he begat a, a whole kind of um, publishing sector. Uh, James, it was great talking to James Brown, and and mm. James has his own book out. And James could have easily said, "I'm not James, interested. the editor of the founder of Loaded at that time." Exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, and he was ve- very generous with his time and anecdotes. Uh, and I think it's it's easy to forget what an important part of culture it was at the time. Uh, and even though it sort of ended badly and ended in a in a very seedy way, the initial sort of excitement was was uh, around around loaded. Did you mean? Yeah, it was great. Um, so another question: Can you foresee another decade ahead? that could bring a cultural revolution to rival that of the 60s or the 90s? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, it, hopefully it's happening now. And, it, and, I, and I shouldn't know anything about it. I mean, it's, 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 uh, I think that, um, like I say, I'm not in the business of my pop music better than your pop music. You want to be surprised by culture. You kind of want to be irritated by culture um, because that's how culture... Um, uh, moves. That's how it reinvents itself. And I have to say that London, in particular, has an ability to regenerate itself continually. And like I say, I I, I fully imagine that's happening right now as we're speaking. Um, uh, Alistair Campbell and Tony Blair have come up a couple of times, but we have a question. Do you think New Labour exploited Cool Britannia? No, um, Cool Britannia didn't really exist. Uh, cool Britannia. Was I think it was first mentioned by Newsweek actually in about 1996, 1997. It's a journalistic term, but um, I asked Alistair about um, New Labour's very obvious co-opting of the creative arts, mm. and he said, um, "Well, we knew it was important, um, and why wouldn't you invite these interesting people to Downing Street? Why wouldn't you want them to on your side? Uh, these were young creatives." So did they exploit it? I, um, I don't think they exploited it. I think they offered it a platform. And I think lots of people, particularly young creatives, get very suspicious of politicians. They get very suspicious of their motives. And I think that it didn't take long for um, people in the music and art world 
and, and, and the world of literature and publishing to distance themselves from New Labour because New Labour managed to, 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 to fall victim to the way that all new governments do. But um, I don't think they exploited it. I think exploited is, a, is too harsh a word, actually. There is actually, there is actually a great scene that, that you describe around the time of the, um, you know, it's a famous party at number 10 where the cultural world gets invited to shake hands with Tony Blair. And you have, a, you have a set of people describing their reactions to their invitations, whether they choose to go or not go. Damien Hurst stays at the Groucho and, yeah. you know, but Alan McGee and Noel, they go along and they want to make their mums proud. And it's, you know, it's a sort of, it's a great insight into these individual motivations around something that otherwise we look at entirely from the outside. It's true. Also, and I don't think I actually knew this at the time, when I was, I um, I spoke to Noel um, and uh, Blair and Alan McGee about this. Is that they didn't actually invite Liam because they said you can control <laughs> you can control Noel, but you can't control Liam. <laughs> um, uh, possibly, I think uh, time for one last question. Oh, when do you think the nineties ended? Was it the death of Princess Diana or, in fact, much later with the invention of the smartphone? I think that you can make a case for uh, the 90s ending in the tunnel in Paris. You can make a case for, for the millennium. You can make a case for uh, <laughs> the launch of the smartphone. Very true. But as I try to describe in the book, every, every decade has a long tail. Well, look, I think we have to finish there. We're at the end of our time. Very sadly, um, uh, one thing I'd say, Dylan, is that uh, I don't think history ends. I don't think the 90s ends. The 90s is alive and fully thriving within the scope of this wonderful book, Faster Than a Cannonball. My thanks to Dylan Jones, to our audience and to Intelligence Squared. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com for even more content made just for our premium listeners, including extended Q&As, event discounts, and our newsletter too. Thanks for being a part of Intelligence Squared. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world... And whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you.